0: Well, it's good to be with all of you this evening. My name is uh, Joseph Bianco. I'm an assistant pastor at City Reformed. It's good to be with you. We're on page 8 of your bulletin, if you have a bulletin. Uh, we're in Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. We've been preaching through Jonah, and we're going to continue that series this evening. So I will read this word, and then our response will be, thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord from Jonah, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray and ask the Lord to direct the preaching of his word. Gracious Father, Lord, we come before the living God. Lord, we've, you've given us your very word, and pray, Father, that we would take it with such gravity. Lord, that it would impact us, that it would change our lives, but that we would receive it as the creation and you as the creator. Lord, that through this very word you speak to your people throughout the generations and today. So, Father, give us hearts that desire to hear and desire to be changed by it. Father, use even my weak words, Lord, for your glory. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Did you ever wonder why Americans produce and love movies like Rambo? Sylvester Stallone, he's a character. Or uh, Americans love cowboy tales, cowboy stories. Um, so I, I've read Lonesome Dove a couple times. I like the book. Um, but we love the idea of cowboys. We love the idea of someone that's rugged and self sufficient that can can be the savior of themselves when they're stuck in a difficult situation. In Lonesome Dove, the main characters travel 1,887 miles from Lonesome Dove, South Texas, all the way to Montana by horseback. If you don't like cowboys, modern James Bond can do anything on his own, does not need help, does not have a partner, doesn't need a hand. Why do Americans love these movies? It provides a fantasy for us. This fantasy of being self reliant, self sufficient, not needing people or help. Today we come into a story where Jonah left dependence upon God. He fled from the Lord and relied on himself. God called Jonah to Nineveh. And he says, No, thank you. And then he is on his way as far as he can from the Lord. It is a literal and a figurative running away from God and running towards his sin. It takes the darkest place in the belly of the fish for Jonah to finally begin to even think about repenting. We'll talk about his repentance later. Jonah exclaims at the end of his prayer, however, salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God. Not to cowboys, not to James Bond, not to ourselves. Ready? hint of self-reliance we think we might have. It belongs to God. This section of Scripture begins and ends with this fish and, and we'll deal with the miracle of the fish throughout the sermon, but for now i want you to notice the text begins with Jonah being swallowed by this fish and it ends with him being vomited out by this fish. Jonah speaks of this trial as a pit. A great distress. But that fish That vehicle of his great distress becomes the same vehicle God uses for his salvation. So I want to first begin by understanding the distress of Jonah. We're going to look at that. Second, we're going to see the answer of the Lord. And then third, what it means to be raised to the heights of God's grace and salvation. So let's look at the distress of Jonah. Jonah continues his descent downward, down to Joppa, down in the ship, down in the water, down into the belly of the fish, and then verse 6, down at the bottom of the sea floor, the land that is at the bottom of the sea. So I want to note a couple of things about Jonah's distress to help you understand the situation. The first is the, the belly of this great fish is not the main description we have of his distress in this passage. In fact, most of the description is not what it's like hanging out in the belly of a fish. Most of the description we read in this text is actually language of drowning. It's drowning. Look, look with me. Verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Being stuck at the bottom of the sea like gates closing over you. Verse 7, when life was fainting away. This is all a description of drowning. And it's actually not that different than language we would use today. Sometimes we may say things like, I'm drowning in my work, or I'm, I'm drowning in my job, or I'm drowning in this relationship, or I'm drowning in this marriage, or I am drowning in my sin. So as I preach this sermon, it is appropriate for you to think of those places in your life, those places you cannot get oxygen, the places you are drowning. Now in Jonah's case, while he is physically drowning in the sea, he is drowning in his sin. Jonah has fled. The Lord's called to Nineveh. So in Jonah's eyes, the Lord is the one bringing him under the water. You heard that correctly. I want you to note the language in the text. He does not say, verse 3, the waves, the billows pass over me. He says, your waves, your billows, Passed over me. He says, You cast me into the deep. Now, this is important because it affects our understanding of how we understand Jonah in the belly of this fish. So let me argue this point with you. Is the main thrust of this text about the fish? Is most of the description about the fish? Some of it, some of it is. Three places, verse two, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Now that's interesting because it's. Not even the belly of the fish, it's Sheol, it's the grave. Then verse 10, the fish vomited Jonah out. In verse 1, he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But that's it. That's all we have. But the majority of the text is one drowning. It's a downward movement going as low as you can to the bottom of the sea. I believe the key to understanding the miracle that Jonah is alive. Alive after being inside a great fish. Alive after having seaweed close in over him is to understand this word appointed. In verse 1, appointed. In Hebrew, and at the end of the chapter, it is the, sorry, not the end of the chapter, the end of the book, it's the same word that God uses, this word appointed, when he appoints a plant to grow over Jonah and give him shade. It's a miracle that that happens. The word appointed has this meaning of God ordained. The point being that this was miraculous, what we are witnessing with Jonah. So I don't want to spend too much time on this, but for those of you who have studied Jonah before, who try to work it out, is this a shark? What kind of shark was it? Was it a whale? Was it a big fish? How could Jonah survive three days and three nights? If you focus on the explaining a miracle, then you have missed the point of this text. Of course a man cannot survive three days and three nights in a fish. Of course, if you are stuck at the bottom of the sea and the gates, the bars close over you, you cannot breathe. You will die. And of course, if you're flung off a boat in a storm, you're going to drown in the sea. The purpose of this section of this poetic prayer is, is to point to the only one who can save from situations like this, in these trials. The purpose is to point to the salvation of God. If you miss that it is God who has both appointed Jonah to be swallowed and appointed Jonah to be saved. If the focus is not on God's salvation, then you gravely miss the point of this text. I believe Jonah really did spend three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And I believe his survival was a miracle of God. Look, if it's hard for you to believe a story like this, that God could cause a man to survive three days and three nights in a fish, then you have a very small view of the power of God. Let me push it a bit further. If you don't believe that God could preserve a man from what should kill him, then you won't believe that God could raise a man after being dead for three days and three nights. I'll talk about this text relationship to Jesus later in the sermon. but the very least this text pushes us to ask the question do we believe God has this kind of power that he could raise a man from the grave from Sheol verse 2. The text also invites us to experience the distress of Jonah. Where in life are you in the pit in great distress? Where in life are you drowning? Where in life has your sin? taking you so deep to the heart of the sea that you feel you cannot escape. The pit in the Bible is the place of helplessness, the place where you come to the end of yourself. The psalmists often talk about being brought up from the pit. In Genesis, Joseph will remember he's thrown down into the pit and abandoned by his family. Job talks about being ransomed from the pit. Other biblical authors use this language of pit. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Lamentation, Zephaniah all use the language of pit. Sometimes God's people are brought to the end of themselves. Perhaps today, this week, you've come into church today in great distress, in a pit. Maybe for some of you it was events long ago You're still there. For all of us, at some time in our lives, it is our sin. Our sin drives us away from God, down, down, down to the bottom of the sea, to death. What is that for you? The good news for Jonah and for us is even in that darkest place, you are not alone. The Lord answers Jonah. I want to look at that now. This is our second point. The answer of the Lord. <clears throat> I'll tell you a story of the time the Lord answered me. I got giardia once. Uh, for those of you that don't know what giardia is, it's an evil bacteria that lives in streams and rivers. And uh, when you're hiking, you want to filter your water correctly so that you do not get giardia. It will make you violently ill. I was hiking with a friend in St. Louis. It was the winter of 2013. It was about 10 degrees outside. And so at that time, all the water was frozen over, including the creeks. So you couldn't tell what was running water versus still water. And you want to filter running water, never filter still water, pro tip, by experience. That night, I was making a fire, and my, um, my friend, Ben, I asked for him to go and filter some water making the fire up you off in the distance. Bang, bang, bang. He came back and said, Ben, what are you doing? So said, I had to break through the ice to get to the water. Well, that night, I drank an entire nalgene full of that water. And Ben, by the grace of God, for whatever reason, it's cold didn't drink any. And when I woke up in the morning, there was a, a puddle under me of frozen water because I had sweat. And condensation created this frozen puddle under my bag. Um, I still had to hike the five miles out being sick like this. And then be driven home by Ben. And I remember, um, this is why I'm telling you this story. I was back at the house, and I was laying under this blanket, and I was shivering. And I literally thought I was going to die. Like, I thought this was it. And I remember running to the bathroom, and I was on the floor... And it was as if every pore in my body all of a sudden just opened. And water didn't drip off my nose. It ran off my nose onto the ground. And it was at that point I did think I was going to die. And I remember praying in a very serious prayer. Like, Lord, I am, I'm not ready to go. Please save me. And I kid you not, in an instant, it stopped. And I was okay. And the Lord answered me. Now, I am sorry if that story grossed you out. I left a lot of details out to try to protect you. Um, But I want to focus on what it was like to be answered by God. To be answered by the God of the universe. When you are in that pit, when you are in distress, when you feel so alone, there is no greater relief to uh, that distress than to be answered by the God of the universe. I want you to look at verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 7. We see Jonah call out to God, and God answers. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit, oh my God. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. To have the Lord answer you in your darkest hour is no small thing. His promise is that He will not leave you or forsake you, but when you are in that pit, you feel left. You feel forsaken. You see, why does Jonah say things about his prayer reaching the temple? He says it twice, verse 4 and verse 7. See, at that time, Jonah, a good... Israelite would have wanted to be near to God and thus near to the temple. God's spirit, his presence, literally resided in the temple. So a good Israelite was close to God by being close to the temple. Priests were closest to God because they were closest to the temple. The high priest had direct access to God. But Jonah was far away. Would God hear his prayer? And yet he says, my prayers reached the temple, I shall again look upon your holy temple. In that dark place, Jonah cried out to God and God heard him. Today, if you've come to church in the pit of distress, if all you can see around you is darkness, if you're so deep in your sin that the Lord feels a million miles away, I want you to hear this. He is near to you. You may have left him, but he has not left you. I'll tell you what, when you're in that place and the sin and the shame cover you to the point where you feel dead, spiritually dead, cry out to God. Cry out to Him. And the promise is that He will answer you. But, if you're like me, and like Jonah, you may need to be brought to the end of yourself. There's no small thing that the Lord's answers his people, I want to just make a note here, a bit of a note of warning to all of us, myself included. We do not need to wait until we are brought to the end of ourselves to repent of our sins. I've been talking generally about the pit, and you know that language of pit, it's used to mean a lot of different things, but I want to pin the tail on the donkey here. Jonah is not sick. Jonah does not have Giardia. He doesn't have anyone trying to come and kill him. He doesn't have any enemies against him. He's in that pit because of his sin. That's why he's there. And you know, this is offensive to us in our modern sensibilities today that that God might, one, tell us that we have sinned. Tell us that there's something wrong with us. But that, too, that he might intentionally put us in a place that only he can get us out of. To show us that real evil exists. Not just out there. We all believe evil exists out there. But that evil exists here in me. The message is also for us, God is near to you, but will it take being plunged to the depths of the sea to repent? Just a minute on this. I said it already, but you don't have to wait. If there's ongoing sin in your life, you don't have to wait to repent. He is near to you. He will forgive you. He is, as Jonah says, steadfast in His love, gracious. It's very interesting. Verse 8 Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You know, steadfast love in Hebrew, that chesed, is the word for grace. Sometimes simultaneously, synonymously used as grace. It's interesting because even in Jonah's prayer, while Jonah says true things, he does not say, I trusted in idols. I have forsaken the Lord. He says, those people... But Jonah just ran away from God. Maybe Jonah trusted in the idol of, and we don't know Jonah's heart, but comfort? Maybe the idol of his own desires? Maybe the idol of loving man, fear of man over fear of God? I'm not convinced here that Jonah's repentance is actually complete in this prayer, as beautiful as it is. We know actually that he sins later at the end of the story. It may not be complete. But let me ask you, is your repentance ever complete? Do you ever get to the depths of your sins and say, I've finally repented of all of it? Of course you don't. There's always more sin, it's always deeper. But let me encourage you with this for God, for Jonah here, his repentance is sufficient. It's sufficient. So don't wait to repent repent of all you can repent of, but then trust in the graciousness of God that in time he will give you and reveal to you more of more times that you can turn back to him. but that when we come to the Lord, we repent of our sins, it is sufficient. He does forgive us. He saves us. let's move us to our third point, the salvation of God, the heights of his grace. The heart of this text is the salvation of God. Jonah ends with this prayer uh, in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the pit, this is not the pit you're thinking of for Americans and even good-natured Pittsburghers. Even us is to think we don't need salvation to the degree God says we need it. We think we need a little bit of salv saving. But on the whole, we're okay. We think I'm fine. You know, I have my my bank account and my car and my Netflix on Friday night, and I'm okay with a, a little bit of sin. We think sin of we think of sin as something we can deal with on our own. That we're Mavericks, we're cowboys. We we don't need help in dealing with our sin. We Americans get caught in the The biggest sin of all, which is to think that we are self-sufficient, that we don't need help, that we can make it on our own, certainly that we don't need God's help, not to the degree He says we do. We downplay our sin. You might think, my sin's not that bad, I'm not hurting anyone, a little look here, a little white lie there, a little ceiling, just a little bit. But I want to, I want to push us on this just a second, and I don't want you to rate, don't raise your hand, but think about it in your minds. Have you ever taken whatever that small sin of yours is to the end? To see where it goes? To see where that sin leads? You know, at first it's it looks like a, a ripple maybe in a stream. Small, eddy, But then when you follow that stream down, you see the end. You see the waterfall. You see the the water crashing on the crags of the rock, you see death. You have to see the end of sin in order to see what you're being saved from. Every sin leads to death. Every sin. Jonah forgot the salvation of God, and it took him seeing the end, seeing the darkness, seeing the pit, the waves, and the billows to remember salvation belongs to God alone. We Americans, if the evil one prevents us from seeing the end, and often for a lot of us this is true, if we're prevented from seeing the extent of the sin, then the evil one's won the day, so to speak. In order to see the salvation of God, you have to see the depths of your sin, where the sin leads, where it takes you. If you look down the path long enough, you will feel and know your need for salvation, for God's salvation. So look, there's two types of people in this room that are going to wrestle with this concept differently. The first is people like me, people who minimize their sin and therefore develop this this pride of self-sufficiency we've been talking about. But there's a second kind of people, um, people who only look at their sin. They look at their sin and they say, I know how bad it is. It's, It's horrible. But they never entrust it to the Lord. They never rest in Him. They never call out to God. We must be neither people. We must be this. We have to see the end of sin and so recognize the heights of God's grace and His salvation. But at the same time, we must hand over our whole selves. All of our sins to the Lord in our shame resting in the truth that you are loved. So let me speak to the first group, a group like me, for just a second. I read over vacation, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau um, and if you've read these men, you understand that they are responsible for this rugged individual. They're responsible for Rambo. Okay? Put it that way. Um, these guys were a big deal in the 1800s, the 19th century. So they called themselves transcendentalists. Don't get, don't focus on that word too much. Henry David Thoreau wrote a book called Walden. And in Walden, he built a cabin with his own hands at the edge of... Walden Pond where he lived in near isolation for almost two years. Now we look on we look at this and we say, wow, what a man living what a rugged man, living by himself for two years, surviving on bread and butter alone, and building a whole cabin with just an axe. I'll give you an idea of his uh, personality. When Thoreau is challenged by a farmer, this is in his own book, Walden. The farmer said to Henry David Thoreau, Thoreau, what if you need more nutrition than just bread and butter? butter for dinner Thoreau responded, if I were asked to survive on steel nails then I would eat steel nails so that is transcendentalism, that is uh, living in the present, the divine transcends to now, that is rugged individualism and that is America, that is us if you don't believe that, look at our media, I don't need God, I don't need help, I can do it on my own brothers and sisters, it's me The gospel is nearly the opposite. We were created for relationship. We were created to know God. We were created to be dependent and needy creatures. We were created in order to be saved. Is this you? Are you a transcendentalist? A rugged individualist? Do you see your need for relationship? Especially with the living God. Do you let people into your life? Do you... Know your need for dependence. Let me go back to the second group. The second group is focused solely on their sin to the exclusion of God. They know their sin, they know how bad it is, or at least they think they do. But that sin and that shame traps them, and it becomes this horrible and vicious cycle. Literally, like the bars keeping them down to the bottom of the sea. Your biggest struggle is not believing. That you, sorry, is, is not that you don't believe you have sin, or that your sin leads to death. Your biggest struggle is believing that God loves you. That He forgives you. That He gave His Son for you. That your sins, because of the work of Jesus, are as far from you as the east is from the west. Your problem is that you don't believe God can perform miracles. You don't believe that He could raise someone from the dead, that He could love someone as terrible or as horrible as you. What do these two have in common? Both are unwilling to depend upon the Lord. Both are unwilling to say that salvation entirely belongs to God. We see both in Jonah, we see a man ashamed for running away, but we also see a man who had to be pushed to the brink of death because of his pride. The truth is, God is so big, He's so mighty, He's so powerful, that there is not a sin that you could commit that He is not powerful enough to forgive. Jonah says, His love is steadfast. He's gracious. At the same time, God is so big, so powerful, so mighty, and so holy that He will not hesitate to do what is necessary in your life to turn you from your sin into Himself, to fight our rugged individualistic hearts. He is wonderful and fearful, and He is gracious and loving. Let me close with this. We know that Jonah is a type of Christ, We're of theological typology, just He's foreshadowing Jesus. And we have to be careful when we, when we talk about types of typology, types of uh, messianic figures in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. But in the New Testament, Jesus just directly says it. <laughs> he says, this is pointing to me. And I'm just going to read the three verses he says it. They're very short. This is Jesus speaking, Matthew 12, 40. Some of these are in your additional scriptures. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 16.4 An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. In Luke 11.30 For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. All of these occasions that Jesus is talking, two of them are to the Pharisees and one of them is to a group of skeptics. Jesus says to them, you will get no sign except the sign of Jonah. And what is the sign of Jonah? That just as Jonah was three days and three nights in this great fish, so Jesus will hang on a cross, a sign, a risen sign, raised up so you could see it for three days and three nights you will will be dead. Jesus knows what it's like to taste death. Jesus knows what it's like to then live the miracle of resurrection. Jesus knows what it's like to go down into the pit, to descend into hell is the language of the Apostles' Creed. He knows what it is to feel pain, to be abandoned, to feel forsaken. You see, Jesus descends into a pit that you and I will never go into. But it's a pit that we belong in. Or rather we should be in. I deserve to be down there. I deserve to be in the belly of the fish. To be at the bottom of the sea. But Jesus goes and he takes my place. And he takes your place. Do you believe in God's steadfast love, that His grace is so great that He would take your place. doesn't end there. A miracle happens. He's raised from dead. He conquers death. He secures for us eternal life. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to perform a miracle like this? If you believe Jesus was raised from the dead then you can believe that Jonah survived 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of a fish. Now that fish which God used as a vehicle of death became a vehicle of life for Jonah. That cross which was a vehicle of death for our Lord Jesus became a vehicle of life for you. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray.